Hello there, and welcome to Music Speaks. Today's guest, we have Christopher Kukuro, the opera superstar, and we'll see you at the end. Have fun. Um, the category there. Um, so, so Chris, this next question for me is, is very personal, kind of gets to my core as a musician. Right. And, and, that, and that question is, um, is a hot dog a sandwich? <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Um, see, we have a different definition of sandwich in Australia. Right. Um, so I'm going to start there. Okay. okay. So in Australia, a, a hamburger or a cheeseburger is a burger. Right. In Australia, if it comes in a bun, you know, which I don't know if, does bun translate? Do you guys use the word bun? Yes. Like a bread roll? Yeah. Yeah. Then it is a burger. Um, So if, whether it's fish, chicken, beef, pork, if it comes in a bun and looks Mm. somewhat like a, resembles a burger, then it's a burger. Whereas, Mm. you know, so that was a learning curve coming over here and it's like, well, a fish sandwich (laughs) is a fish sandwich, you know, or I remember the first day I turned up to university. And I went to the the deli or the you know the, the cafeteria, and I ordered a chicken salad sandwich. And then when I took a bite of it, and it was just chicken and mayonnaise, and I was very confused <laughs> because in Australia, a chicken salad sandwich would be some form of chicken with right. lettuce, tomato, carrot, maybe some some beets. Um, anyway, so uh, there's that distinction to be made to start with. Now, a hot dog comes in a bun, but it's a long bun, so. I would not call it a sandwich. Wow. Because it doesn't resemble a burger. Wow. Which, you know, is so there you go. More than you bargained for there. I love it. Yeah. Depressing. That's okay. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, if you were able to talk to a younger version of yourself who's interested in what you do, um, what would you say to that person? Because I know you said you were a telemarketer. Now we're all on the same call. Would you like to throw out your telemarketing skills at us right now and say, what would you say to those people to get us interested in opera? Well, how would I get you interested in opera? Yeah. Sure. Okay. Um, I would say that opera is – how do I do this diplomatically? Um, because <laughs> I don't – That is know, the question. You, well, you'll always hear people say, oh, you know, opera singing is the Olympic level of singing. And I don't mm. think that's fair. Because pop singing takes incredible virtuosity in a lot, you know, in a lot of different styles. You know, I don't think anyone could hear Beyonce do the three three million key changes that she does in "Is It Love on Top," <laughs> you know, and say, "Well, that's not virtuosic, and that doesn't take skill, and that doesn't take athleticism." Like, come on, mm. she uh, sh- she's a vocal athlete as well. But um, the demands of opera are incredible in and of themselves. You know, I I love the idea that we train our voices to be megaphones, that we are completely unamplified. And the reason that we're unamplified, I think, is because when I speak to a person, you feel what I'm feeling by way of my voice. And I don't want a speaker system to get in the way of that. When we're on the opera stage, we are feeling the highest levels of drama and emotion. And we don't want to adulterate that in any way, shape or form by way of a a microphone or a speaker. I want to communicate to you exactly what I'm feeling, exactly what my character is experiencing in that moment. You might say, well, it's old fashioned and this, that and the other. It's like, sure, 
But Lord of the Rings is an, a, a you know medieval fantasy, and we can still connect with those characters. So you're going to tell me that uh, you can't connect with with a story because it's set in an in, in an old or you know an, an ancient potentially setting? You know, can you tell me that people came along to rape of Lucretia and weren't affected because it was an ancient Roman story? No, of course no. not. It, this is opera tells the story of the human experience and it's all relatable to today there is i think you would struggle to find anything that happens on the operatic stage that doesn't have some correlation to what happens in the modern world and the reason is that humans are as they always have been and probably unfortunately always will be there are villains in the world there is evil in the world there is love and good and hope in the world and all of those things are put in 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 the limelight on the operatic stage and we communicate it to you with the full force and power of our voices and with the exciting addition of these orchestral instruments underneath us, which we know the power of the orchestra because, I mean, the orchestra has persisted in, in film, uh, you know, in a huge way. Uh, they say that Verdi was the, the grandfather of film music. Um, and so, uh, it's written in the same way that when you watch a, 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 a really emotional scene in a film and the orchestra swells, that emotional experience that you have from watching that is what you're going to get from opera. And you don't need to worry about the language element. People say, oh, but I don't understand the words. But ballet has no words. Ballet is just physicality. And yet we understand the story. Why? Because we are... Uh, we, there are innate forms of communication. When a person shouts in the in the uh, uh, the complex next door, you know, the building next door to your apartment complex, you can tell from listening to that shout whether it's a shout for help, whether it's a shout uh, of of joy and excitement, whether it's a shout because they they hurt themselves. Just by you don't need to know what word they said. You know inherently the nature of that shout, and that's the same with opera. Is it shouting? Yes. I mean, in a way, it kind of is. It's controlled and healthy and efficient shouting. Um, <laughs> but it's exciting and it's thrilling and amazing to hear these people to be able to get through two-hour operas to six-hour operas. And that's the other objection we'll always get with opera is, oh, it's too long. People will then go and watch, you know, do a marathon of the extended editions of Lord of the Rings for 12 hours but say that a three-hour opera is too long. Most Marvel films run for three hours now. Don't give me that. Like you've just got to get in the room and it does need to be the right production. I'll give you that. Mm. I don't recommend that all opera is for all levels of, of audience ship. Um, but uh, there is certainly an opera for everyone and there is a way into that world and into that craft. And uh, I, I just encourage people to, to give it a try in the house and if that means that you want to dress up and do it as an event, as a, you know, as an event, by all means, why not? Opera is an experience. It's not the everyday thing. And that's what makes it special. Um, but that doesn't mean that it has to be that way. It doesn't have, you're not excluded because you can't, you don't have a suit, you know, um, you're not excluded because you're, you don't want to wear a ball gown to the opera. You can, the modern opera house is open to all people. And tickets are a lot more affordable than you would expect. You can get tickets for under $20 at the Metropolitan Opera in New York by doing rushed, rush seating. 
And that's not like some insider secret, you know, you've got to know someone (laughs) to be able to get that. That's you get on their website at midday, every day on the day of a performance, you go into a lottery and audiences, particularly musical theater audiences are familiar with that lottery process because everyone tries to go and see the Book of Mormon for 20 bucks. Um, You know, so it's, I think that, as I said, opera has an image problem, but it really comes down to the marketing. You know, I, I see so many um, opera hits type concerts advertised as opera without the boring bits. And you think <laughs> you're an opera company. Your bit, your core business is selling those boring bits to mm. your audience. And here you are completely throwing that at them and saying, oh, yeah, no, you're right. Opera is boring. Just come to this concert instead. No, 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 no. Marketing departments need <laughs> passionate mm. opera goers and opera singers to inform them uh, better uh, because opera isn't boring. At least it shouldn't be. Mm. Okay. With varying success, you know, production to production. But that's that's my pitch, sure. my elevator pitch. Yeah. Can can I vote you to be president? Because that was a very <laughs> that was a beautiful pitch. Yeah, unfortunately, um, I'm not allowed. I'm an, Im- <laughs> I'm an immigrant, not allowed. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Um, Chris, I think the one thing that you haven't talked about yet, um, and you have no, I'm kidding. Um, the one thing you haven't talked about yet was talk about teachers and, uh-huh. and the role that they've played in your life. Sure. Um, what is one thing, or maybe maybe a couple of things that maybe some teachers have said to you that really has resonated you sort of leading you down the path for your career? Yeah. Okay. Um, that's a good question. Uh, and my memory is not the best at the best of times. Um, you know, I've had teachers that have challenged me, um, unintentionally who have, uh, suggested, you know, uh, uh, that, Perhaps it was too late uh, for me to start or that the voice wouldn't develop into an operatic instrument or um, but I'm someone who doesn't take no for an answer. Um, You know, teachers who have said, well, you're too far behind on the literature, for example, and each one of those uh, potentially dismissive comments, which is unusual to say, well, that's coming from a teacher, but somewhat that is the role of a teacher to be able to help a person to understand whether or not this is going to be a career for them, especially in the United States where students are paying through the nose for their education. So you want a teacher to be honest with you early on, but at the same time, you don't know what a person's capacity is until they've undergone sufficient training. Um, I've taken each one of those comments as a challenge and I've gone on and I have familiarized myself with, uh, with the repertoire. I have, um, with my tenacity gone on to have uh, at least the beginnings of a professional career. I have trained day and night on my voice to make sure that it was going to develop into an operatic size instrument. I've undergone extensive pedagogical training now with my current teacher um, to understand the physiology and function of the voice um, so that I can not only better my own singing, but also pass that on to um, the the next level of singer. Um, and so I, I don't, uh, I don't look at those comments necessarily, necessarily in a negative light because they got me where I am today in their own way. 
not necessarily because they were meant in an encouraging way, but because I took them as the challenge that then forced me to work harder to get where I am today. Um, I, but that's not to say that I've had, you know, only, you know, exclusively negative, negative experiences. You know, I've always had positive experiences with my teachers. Um, here and there, my current teacher, uh, Dr. Austin is, um, I've worked with him for the past four years and he really took me where I was at when I came into the school, um, which was as an emerging artist. And, uh, we've done a whole lot of technical work. And I think that, um, the key takeaway that I've, I've had from Dr. Austin is, um, that as you, as a young singer, oftentimes we're career focused. We, we want the job. And so we'll do what we need to do to get the job. And with me, Dr. Austin's, uh, this is Dr. Stephen Austin at, at, at UNT. Um, a lot of the time he says, well, hang on, let's learn to sing first. Then you can work out what to sing. Then you can work out who to sing it for, <clears throat> which you might think, oh, well, hang on a second. You're, you're getting on in years. Um, are you sure you want to slow those things down? But his approach is, well, until you've got something that is at that elite level of singing, that is optimum technical, communicative and efficient uh, production, then you don't really want to be presenting yourself just yet. Um, he's very, very much supportive of the professional opportunities that I've had, and he doesn't stop me from pursuing those. But um, that's been a, a really, um, you know, a key takeaway from me with him, which has really allowed me to focus technically on my voice, which I think has held me in really good stead. Right. And I always like that when when teachers are in a, in a way they're leading you down the path but then you also are able to discover something on your own mm -hmm. so in a way you're you're developing but also you're learning at the same time absolutely which is really, which is really cool yeah. um which is what my dissertation is going to be about which is pretty oh, cool there you go. um yeah, so cool. um all right i'm going to throw it back to mary who's going to yeah. obviously chris is our master of segues today so uh <laughs> mary take it away well i mean uh, so you've talked about this a little bit, and um, I, I know you said that you kind of haphazardly fell into this at the right time, in, mm -hmm. a, in a way. Yeah. So um, I wanted to ask you, uh, I mean, the, the voice does develop late, especially uh, the lower the male voice. Mm -hmm. So um, how does that affect when like, for instance, you said you're teaching um, students who, who typically have more of a passion for what they're doing rather than a vocation. Mm -hmm. um, so could you talk a little bit about, you know, how you might encourage younger students that have the long game to wait for? Um, sure. One of my very good friends at home, she uh, was an alto for a very long time. And then uh, she became a mezzo, like, uh, right before she graduated. And, right. Uh, She's still kind of waiting um, to mm -hmm. see when her voice might mature a little bit more. So, um, yeah, uh, what kind of advice do you have for those that get into this very early um, in terms sure. of letting their voice develop? <clears throat> yeah, I, I think that that's um, th there's a difference between hmm, where do I start? I I, I, uh, I take the point and I I, um, I completely 
uh, I empathize with those students because even as an older singer myself, um, you know, I, I spoke with a baritone who's about, <clears throat> you know, a decade younger than me just two days ago. And he was experiencing some anxiety because he said, I don't know what my voice is. And here I am a decade on from him and said, I still don't know what my voice is. Um, and the reality is that, you know, the, the opera industry tries to put us into boxes, which mm -hmm. is practical. But the Fach system, as Dr. Jeffrey Snyder at, uh, at UNT will say, who's an extraordinary expert in, mm -hmm. uh, in repertoire and, um, and voice type and Fach. Um, from all the national schools, not just the German FARC system. But it, the FARC system is for producers and casting agents. It was not meant to be a vocal classification system for the singer. Um, and so, uh, you know, there's a great book, Baldry, um, or it's um, operatic arias and roles or something similar to that. And he, he goes through and actually categorizes all the famous singers of his time. And he talks about, there's, there's a section where you can see which far they're supposed to be. And nearly every single one of those professional singers sang about seven far, roles from seven different farks or more. Um, and so voice categorization, you know, when, when it comes down to it, you sing what is comfortable, um, you sing what is a, appropriate for your level, you sing what isn't going to hurt you. And sometimes to some extent, unfortunately, within the profession, you sing what you get paid to sing. Um, but for the young singer who's kind of starting out, I, I don't actually, and this might be a bit controversial to say, but, you know, when you have singers like um, Hans Hotter, one of the greatest Wagnerian bass baritones of all time, debuted as Voltan in, I think it was maybe 21, 22, 23 you know, um, most of the role creators of of the, the operas that we're performing today, they were, you know, some of the, the younger women were performing at 15 years old. Now, I don't necessarily mean to say that, okay, great, because they were 15, you can do it too. Let's start learning the heaviest repertoire. Um, I think that it's, it's uh, the responsibility of the teacher to be able to gauge the capacity of the student. But I also don't think necessarily that you should restrict the student from learning that repertoire early. Um, there are pros and cons because if you are at an early stage of your technical development and you're learning repertoire that you're going to be singing later career, that can jeopardize your success in that uh, repertoire because you're learning in uh, a, a foundational technique as opposed to an established elite level technique that you mm -hmm. want to be using in the repertoire later. However, you know, I think there are advantages to learning uh, some of that heavier, more challenging repertoire early, because then that gives you years of of development in that repertoire to continue growing it. Now, there's a difference between learning it and presenting it. I would never say to a young singer, you know, but I, I'm actually quite conservative in my um, in in my choices. For example, I don't think that young singers should be singing vintage but I I take that. Uh, from a dramatic point of view. I just don't think that a young singer has the life experience necessarily to present that in the way that it was intended. Um, however, can they start learning it young? Sure, why not? Like uh, Schubert's not going to hurt you um, as long as you're singing it under, uh, you know, under supervision and with the correct technical approach. Um, so I don't want singers to get bored of the art form early and decide this isn't for me because I want to, you know, I don't want to wait 10 years to sing the repertoire that I'm passionate about. 
I want them to be able to bring the repertoire that they're passionate about to me. And I want to guide them through the process of learning that and also mentor them as to when it is appropriate to present that repertoire. Um, yeah, because I, let me, well, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, that's, that's right. I, I think that that's, that's the crux of it. Well, um, I, I think, <clears throat> so let's just follow up a little bit because there are a lot of performance health concerns that go sure. through like doing something early, like, sure. um, in my world as like for horn players um a lot of what i do with young horn players is like fixing what happens here because mm -hmm. the current mindset is, uh, at least with younger players is that oh just make them getting like make sure that they get sound and then mm -hmm. we'll fix it like 10 years later when they right. get into grad school right. but if you do that 70 to 80 percent of people deal with like professional playing injuries and like 10 percent of those people can never play again mm -hmm. like that's not an okay statistic and so i think one thing that i've always kind of wondered is that at least in in your profession there is some sort of um not necessarily negative connotation but there is um a different opinion when thinking about how long it takes the voice to mature mm -hmm. and um for us like it's kind of like you know you play for 10 years and whether or not you had private lessons when you get to grad school you got to be like on it mm -hmm. and no matter what happens to you know your your physical uh attributes during that time and sure. there are biological things to consider too yeah but um it's just it's interesting um kind of to hear you you talk about it like that because you know there is some repertoire that doesn't have a place whether it be for technical demands or um you know context and um life experience that can mm -hmm. inform the role so do you believe that those kinds of things can protect younger singers because the amount of repertoire out there will do that or yeah so i think that um uh It's on the definitely. Yeah, I mean, it's it's we see a lot of you know, eight year olds, for example, on talent shows singing Nessun Dorma and similar. Um, I think that with the voice, you take the voice where it's at, and it, it should perform. The, the difficulty or or the danger is when uh, you have a singer that is at a particular level, and they're trying to sing repertoire that has. Uh, challenging demands that are beyond well aren't necessarily where they're at but if they're singing it with their own voice that's going to be a lot healthier than if they try singing it in a voice that is not their own and yeah. that's where you get the the real uh the performance health or vocal health challenge is that if they're trying to sing it in a way that is not appropriate for their current technical or uh, even physiological development um that, that's that's where you've got to really be careful and that's why i think that exploration of more advanced repertoire is not necessarily inappropriate as mm -hmm. long as it's under the uh the guidance of a teacher who understands uh the voice and yeah. uh and the technical demands both of the repertoire and the technical uh wh where the student is technically um because I have no problem with a student bringing in more advanced repertoire if we can work through diction, for example. We can work through rhythms. We can, there are so many elements of the music that we can work through with them. We can talk character so that they're getting, starting to get, 
think dramatically about the role and that it's not just pretty music on a page with the music that we sing. Everything that we sing has a story. So what is the story? Let's start talking about that. So there's there are other elements beyond just the, the singing of the piece. Um, so Agreed. Yeah. vocal health is important and that has to be that's tantamount. We, mm -hmm. Anything that I'm going to I'm going to work through with it with a student, I'm going to make sure that it's that it's vocally healthy for them. Professionally as well, um, I don't want them jeopardizing a career by trying to present something early, and that's. Uh, but I think there are pedagogical benefits to starting learning certain repertoire earlier, so that they have it has time to gestate, rather than uh, waiting until you're cast in it to learn it. And then it's not sung into the body the way that you want it to be for your your debut performance. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, I can definitely agree with all of it. I just I kind of wanted to catch all <laughs> in the, <laughs> um, field. But um, anyways, uh, I think now is the time for uh, Hunter maybe to ask his last question. You'll you'll like this one. Uh huh. Looking forward to it. Yeah. So this one is uh you know it's something that you touched on actually and um. You know, given that we have mentioned how the public has such a narrow view of opera, um, they have, you know, most of them are not, as we said earlier, really well versed in it. They don't really understand it in a, I think, an intimate sense. Mm -hmm. um, and even I think the music industry itself doesn't really necessarily have a great concept of opera. Clearly, as you said, when the when the opera houses are promoting their own operas as as like without the boring parts. Yeah. Um, is there a particular myth about the operatic world that you would like to dispel for others? Or or perhaps is there a better way that we can educate people about it? Mm. That's a good question. I mean, there, there are so many myths about, uh, about opera. And I, I think the one that most marketing departments try and engage with directly is uh, the elitist element of it. There's the, um, uh, the body type myth you know the mm -hmm. big big voices come out of big bodies and um uh, and, and you know that, that actually there's a lot happening at the moment um in the operatic world there's a lot of discussion there's a lot of fighting back against body shaming and you know there there have been prominent artistic directors on on record with newspapers saying i won't hire you know you won't sing with this company if if you're overweight um you know so there's but there is a counter movement to that right now. But the, I think that um, for me, the myth that uh, opera is inaccessible, mm -hmm. which I know that feels like maybe a bit, that's a bit of a cheat because an umbrella, you know, a, a bit of a catch all, but, but it's true. It's not boring. It's not elite. It's not inaccessible. I think that um, we, I think that the industry is often geared toward elitism, and the reason for that is because it is purely financial. Opera is expensive to stage. Even outreach programs. I tried to uh, do some uh, costings of of an outreach program that I wanted to establish, and it was over a hundred thousand dollars just to to service one county, and that's with four singers and minimal set. And wow. you know, <clears throat> opera is expensive because if you're going to pay people the way that they deserve to be paid. There are a lot of people involved, even in the smallest scale production. Um, there are a lot of produ production elements that, that are, are involved. And so I think the industry then says, OK, well, we need to target the rich because they're the mm -hmm. ones who are the, who are going to donate to us 
So what do they want? So the, the marketing departments aren't really looking to the average Joe or Jane to buy tickets because ticket sales, as the Metropolitan Opera says at the beginning of every one of their live broadcasts, ticket sales account for this minuscule um, amount of their overall revenue. And it predominantly comes from um, from donors and, and government grants, of course. Mm-hmm. And so uh, you understand then that marketing departments want to say, okay, well, what do those donors want from the opera? Because they're the ones that we need to get in so that they can keep the opera running. Whereas right. government grants tend to be focused more at communities, at outreach, at getting the arts out to the people. And so there are certain metrics that companies have to meet to, to qualify for that grant money. And so at the same time as trying to market to uh, to the wealthy who are going to donate, they also have to, uh, to say, yes, this is elite. And, you know, this is going to be a very elite experience for you donors, but also this isn't elite. And uh, and anyone's able to come, and that that's a really difficult line to walk. But I tend toward the this is not elite. This is for everyone. Let's go mm-hmm. get bums on seats because I honestly believe that when people give opera a chance in earnest, and they come along and they say, "I'm going to, I, I want to learn about," if they've been given an opportunity to be introduced to the story in advance of the show, all the better. Because I think that the story is is the key to people getting engaged in what's happening on stage. Mm-hmm. It allows them to suspend the disbelief in terms of the singing, the music, the the you know er, er, all the fantastical elements of of the opera. Um, it isn't elite. It isn't inaccessible. Anyone can appreciate it, and probably will. And I think that the success of uh, opera in film music is great evidence of that. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I think that's true because, you know, how many times have we, and I, I forget who mentioned it before, someone said about how, you know, we hear it all the time on like a, in a cartoon or you hear it all the time in um, uh, movies when they want to do something dramatic, you know, what are they listed? What's going on in that scene? Well, it's an opera of some sort, right? They, it's right. adding to the tension of the scene. Yeah, exactly, right. Moments sorry, of high so. tension. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were talking. No, I was just saying that they're always incorporated at moments of high tension or high drama. And there's a reason for that. It's because opera is the best method of communicating that tension and that drama. Exactly. Right. And I think that, you know, the, the public uh, inadvertently realizes it. Like if you ask them, you know, if you, you showed the and again, it's a stereotype, but if you showed them a picture of the woman in the Viking helmet with mm-hmm. a spear singing, you know, and you ask them what was the mood in that moment, you know, they probably say it's intense. Yeah. Because they understand that, like, there's there's dramatic music going on. She's singing a high note, and there's a lot going on. The uh, best. Right, exactly. And it's very, you know, so Wagnerian. Uh-huh. But it's, they understand that, and yet they, they also don't understand. You know, they understand mm-hmm. that it's, dramatic and then they almost i think feel like it's comical yeah yeah absolutely not that the drama that's comedy is the real drama yeah yeah and i think that's just a lack of familiarity we laugh at things that we're uh that we're perhaps a little bit uncomfortable with or uh, unfamiliar with um and and that's okay 
I think that's a way mm. of getting people in the door as well. It's like, okay, you want to see the, you know, um, experience that live then. Come come and see them. And if you if it makes you laugh, then by all means. But it will make you laugh. Comic operas are hilarious. But mm-hmm. I think that uh, if, if they if they came along to a, a production of Deep Alcuda um, and got to hear, you know, some of the leading sopranos in the world singing uh, Brunhilde and um, mm-hmm. and the Ride of the Valkyries, I think they're going to have, you know, very quickly have a very different experience and see the wonder and um just again the incredible athleticism of, of the performers on, on stage and the, just the the wall of sound from the orchestra and the stage it's yeah overwhelming mm-hmm. yeah. yeah and on that note we will uh move to a quick little break and then when we come back we'll have some more questions for you specifically about performance uh-huh. um so now uh, now we're doing our little, uh, what would you call it, your uh, best pitch here for our social media platforms. And uh, our break is going to be sponsored by our friends at Anchor. And for those listening, if you'd like to follow us, we are on Twitter. We are at MusicSpeaks underscore pod. On Instagram, we are at MusicSpeaks underscore podcast. On Facebook, we are MusicSpeaks podcast. On TikTok, we are at MusicSpeaks underscore podcast. And on the YouTube, we are MusicSpeaks podcast. With that said, we will be right back. So stay with us. Come on. You can do it. Come on. <laughs> Turn off. We've only been using Skype for like a little <laughs> while because Google Meets happened, but um Yeah, Google Meets started asking for money and I said no. Oh yeah, absolutely. Come. Thank you, Christopher. I'm Sean Rakunas, that's Mary Haddix, and that is also Hawk Sagona, and we will see you next time. Keep listening to what you love.